Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm very delighted to have back on the show today Mary Kay Lombino, Emily Hargroves Fisher, and Richard B. Fisher, Curator of Collections at the Francis Lehman Loeb Arts Center here at Vassar. We're going to be talking about the exhibition currently on view at the Center through December 15th entitled Shape of Light, Defining Photographs from the Francis Lehman Loeb Arts Center. Welcome back on the show, Mary Kay. Thank you for having me. It's always great to have you here. First off, this is an in-house show that you've assembled entirely from your own holdings? Yes. Uh, so the Loeb Art Center at this point has somewhere around, we don't know exactly the amount because there's lots of small components, uh -huh. but around 4,500 photographs in the collection. Uh -huh. So it, there was a lot to choose from, uh -huh. as you can imagine. But we really did want to showcase that collection because many of those things have come in somewhat recently and have never been on view. Uh -huh. And there's never been an exhibition quite like this that brings this many works from all different aspects of our photography collection together in one place. And what I also wanted to do was show off some of the strengths of the collection, the diversity of the collection, and its unique character. Because this collection has grown in various ways over many, many years, uh -huh. and it's different from any other collection in the uh, world. Uh -huh. And also, as you can imagine, taking 4,500 works and trying to decide what would go in uh -huh. it is quite a challenge. I can tell you that originally I had about 400 that I had chosen uh -huh. to choose from, uh -huh. and then most of, you know, the hardest part of this exhibition was to narrow it down from 400 so, yeah. to what ended up being 125 objects uh -huh. in the exhibition. Uh, so you're showing off the collection, but you're also commemorating an important anniversary of the Advisory Council? That's right. So the Advisory Council for Photography at Vassar has now been around for 20 years. Uh -huh. They first met in 1999, and they're a group of advocates, photography supporters, photography enthusiasts, many of whom are alum, but not all of them. And they've come together around the Loeb to help us mostly in the activity of growing the collection. Uh -huh. So each year they pay an annual dues and all of those funds, 100% of those funds, go right into an annual acquisition, which is usually a number of acquisitions. Uh -huh. And then this year our new director, Bart Thurber, just announced that we'll be matching those dues dollar for dollar. Oh. So oh. there's about 20 members. We usually uh -huh. raise a little bit more than $20,000. Uh -huh. But from now going forward, we'll have closer to $40,000 uh -huh. to spend on that acquisition. So this is an acquisitions budget then? Yes. Purely for acquisitions. Uh -huh. Yeah, and the, and the nice thing about this group is that they help us decide. I usually bring in a number of works, all of which would be fantastic for the collection yeah. and would fill gaps that are important to fill and then they help decide which ones of those works uh -huh. get to come into the collection. Oh, I see. So they're really involved. Do they vet every purchase or just those that they are funding? Only so. those that they're funding. Okay, yeah. Yeah, other purchases we have different pools of money yeah. and those go through our typical acquisitions committee. Yeah. And then do you rely on them for other services such as advice, you know, when you're designing exhibitions or thinking about collecting items or... Um... Um, not so much for exhibitions, but if there are works out there that are available for sale, yeah. I don't always know exactly what's happening at every auction in the yes, world, yeah, uh -huh. you know, every exhibition, and so I solicit suggestions 
from them of what yeah. to see, what to consider. Yeah. And then I basically ask them from the things that I've chosen which ones they would prefer. Are some of them artists themselves? I mean, photographers? So. There are a few photographers. There's photography collectors. Uh -huh. There are a few people on the opposite end of the spectrum. For instance, someone who works at one of the auction houses, uh -huh. someone who's a longtime photography dealer. Uh -huh. But mostly it's just people who really believe in the lobe uh -huh. and want to advocate for this medium being really central to our mission, uh -huh. which it is. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. And it continues to be thanks yeah. to their support. Wonderful. So it's been 20 years. So you had a celebration last week. Yes, yes uh, we yeah. did. And I'm so happy to honor them and just thank them for all of their support. So how did you come up with a title for the exhibition, Shape of Light? That's a good question. It, it, it's a nice title, I Thank have to you. say. It makes it, it I has, like it, yeah, too. Yeah. It um, has a sculptural something about it. So. That's right. And I think that idea, this is what sort of struck me about photography. I was really looking at the ways in which photography sets itself apart from other mediums that exist in a collection, like uh -huh. sculpture, painting, even you know, video or other objects. Yeah, which is all part of your brief here, besides the photography collection. Yes, yes yeah, yeah. And especially anything made after... World War II yeah. is under my purview. So I really wanted to bring attention to the idea that photography is a medium that's made with light and that it's basically light and a chemical reaction, at least that's how it was invented. And so light becomes this tool, almost like a paintbrush early uh -huh. on when yeah. photography was first invented. They would say that light was you know, a pencil. And so to bring attention to that idea that each of these is made basically with shadow and light. Uh -huh. And then the second half of the title is defining photographs from the collection. Uh -huh. And I use that word defining because I believe that there are many ways to define what a photograph is. Uh -huh. And that continues to broaden as we uh -huh. move forward into the 21st oh, century. Interesting, because it started out broad, didn't it? I mean, it was, photography was used for all kinds of things. Yes, so, yeah. it's always been used for practical purposes, also for fine art, to document things. And so this broad reach that photography has can be difficult to define. Uh -huh, yeah. And I posit this idea that our collection has the ability to help us define what we mean uh -huh. when we say the word photograph. Uh -huh. Really interesting. So our collection does go back a long time, and I was surprised to read that Matthew <laughs> Vassar actually was interested in photography, and some of the photographs go back to his presidency. Yes, all, all his back. original gift, which uh -huh. is really interesting. Yeah, it is. Because, of course, photography was very young at that point. Yeah. And if it wasn't we, an art form at the time so much as a scientific medium, wasn't it? Yeah. It was. I mean, when photography was born, it's interesting. So Louis Daguerre presented his invention mm -hmm. in Paris to two groups at once. Uh -huh. One was the Academy of the Sciences and the other was the Academy of the Arts. So from the very beginning, yeah. it's been both a scientific, yeah. useful medium as well as it has been yeah. something for artists to experiment with. So back in 1864, before Vassar had even conducted its first classes, Matthew Vassar acquired the first photographs for what was then the Vassar College Art Gallery. Uh -huh. And it was because his friend and a college trustee the Reverend Elias Magoon was an avid art collector, and mm -hmm. part of his collection included a very early collection of 17 calotypes, uh -huh. which depicted scenes from the English countryside, uh -huh. and those remained the basis of the photography collection 
ever since. Uh-huh. I know Matthew Vassar made a point of not wanting his students to be studying from reproductions of works of art, even painted reproductions of works of art. He wanted original works. That, that's, that, right. that's why he bought this collection from Magoon. Yeah. So in this case, these aren't representations of works of art. They're actually works of art themselves. He was regarding them in that way. Right? That's right. Yeah, they yeah. were landscapes, and they could have the ability to transport students into the English countryside uh-huh, uh-huh. in a way that a painting could yeah, do as well. Uh-huh. Just fascinating. So Yeah, yeah, yeah so, so nice lucky Vassar yeah. students back in the 19th yeah, century yeah, were exactly, looking at so. early photography. Many of the 19th century works that we have, they seem to show an interest in the experimental side of photography because it is an experimental medium right from the get-go, isn't it? It's still today experimental. Absolutely. And that was one of the things I really wanted to emphasize Uh is that photography lends itself to pushing the medium beyond Uh its usual borders. Uh So some of these very early pieces, I mentioned Louis Daguerre, There's a fantastic whole plate daguerreotype in the exhibition, which is a somewhat new Mm -hmm. acquisition. We acquired that, I believe, in 2018. Mm -hmm. Really, at this point, I was already thinking about the exhibition, knowing that I wanted an excellent example of daguerreotype in the exhibition. So I found this cased image, which depicts a young woman in mourning clothing. Mm -hmm. And we believe it to be from the studio of Whipple, who is a Boston-based daguerreotypist. And... It's just a stunning image. And with daguerreotype, it would actually create a negative, but you're looking at a mirrored surface, so Uh you see a positive image. And it's very crisp in the details. Her clothing especially is featured probably because it marked her as a widow. Mm -hmm. And then her face, and you can see just a little bit of colorization Mm -hmm. in the cheeks and in the lips. And then there's an interesting use of soft focus Mm -hmm. that he applies to the hands in the foreground of the image, which really connects photography to painted portraits Uh from the 19th century because really photography was beginning to take the place of painted portraits. And of course, when you asked a painter to paint your image, you didn't necessarily want complete realism. Uh You wanted to look your best. And so photographers were charged with this same Uh kind of (laughs) <laughs> task. Still are today. Part, and part still are today. That's yeah, right. Yeah. If you're working with a client, yeah. your job is to please the yeah, client. You don't want to take a picture of anybody's ugly baby, right? So, <laughs> yes, that's right. So, There's this yeah. kind of interesting moment where photography, which is already known for recording reality, yeah, maybe uh-huh. even being too real, uh-huh. is charged with making attractive portraits of portrait clients. And so there's already the beginning of photographers using a little of their artistic license uh-huh. to change reality uh-huh. and make things look the way that the client wanted them yeah. to look. And then there's a sort of stepping over the line right into trying to depict the supernatural. Isn't yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. So another couple of early pictures right in the beginning of the exhibition, you'll see many different methods where artists decided to change reality. Mm-hmm. For instance, in the James Van Der Zee piece, it's a depiction of a funeral uh-huh. of a young girl who had passed away, and her image, actually an earlier photograph of her, sort of hovers over uh-huh. the church scene where you see the choir and the mourners, and then this very large young woman sort of floating over uh-huh. the scene. Yeah, no Photoshop involved in this. No, <laughs> exactly, and I love teaching the students yeah. that you know, manipulation of photography was happening Uh 
yeah. long before Photoshop but, uh, was invented. Yeah. And so that's always fun. And then just in terms of experimentation, I also want to bring up Anna Atkins. And I'm so pleased that we have a work by her in the collection that I could include in the exhibition because she was a very early adapter of photography. In fact, her book of cyanotypes was the first book that was ever completely illustrated with photography and this was a book where she was really documenting plant life Mm -hmm. in a more of a scientific experiment but the images are absolutely stunning and they're that bright blue color of a cyanotype and the cyanotype is actually related to blueprints Uh it's the same practice and the same materials are used oh really i remember making those in drafting in high school back in the 1960s yeah Yeah. ammonia we had to put in a tube and yeah that's right it's it's this chemical process that she applied to her documentation of these plants but i find them to be beautiful beautiful artistic yeah i I, I agree yeah. yeah so are there other unusual types of photography in the early part of the collection i mean because not everything was silver halide in those years yeah that's right and you mentioned the daguerreotypes and the cyanotypes but um, yeah so um there there are many other techniques that were just beginning to come to light early on. I mentioned these calotypes, and calotypes is basically, that was introduced by William Henry Fox Talbot in Uh 1841, and that was paper coated with silver iodide, and that would create a negative, which could then be created into a positive. So that's the moment in which you go from the polished silver surface from Uh a daguerreotype into a paper object, and then it could be endlessly reproduced. Uh So we have an example of that. We also have an example of a gum bicarbonate print. There are albumin prints, Uh many different objects that, again, help us to define what we think of as a photograph. Uh So in a way, we have an exhibit that encompasses the early history of photography here. It does. It's not a complete history, but it really does touch on some of these very important milestones. Interesting. So we seem to have gone through various phases of collecting, right, beginning with Matthew Bassett's calotypes here, but going on, especially in the 19th century and early 20th century. And there seems to have been an influx of photographs into the collection for artists working in the classic period of 20th century photography with photographers like Walker Evans, Eugene Etche, Man Ray, Lewis Hine, Paul Strand. So can you talk about those kind of waves of acquisition that seem to be endemic to the way institutions do collect? If you, if you study the history of their collections, you'll find out that there are times when things really bloom. So, That's right. And yeah. I think one needs to also think about this idea that photography was not always accepted as an art form, uh-huh. especially by institutions. Yeah. So that can create two separate results. Yeah. One is that they were not collected by institutions for many, many years. Uh So all through the 40s, 50s, even 60s, there were museums that didn't accept photographs into their collection. The other result of that is because a lot of people aren't collecting them as artworks, they're very inexpensive. Uh So Vassar was able to take advantage of the wonderful market Uh in the very early 70s when there was a gift, an expendable cash gift, given to what was then the Vassar College Art Gallery, and I think it was around $10,000, which seems like such a small amount to our minds today. But the then director of the gallery, who was also a professor in the art department, Nikolai Tchaikovsky, used that money to buy work by all living photographers, Uh and he bought almost 100 works with the 
$10,000, which would be unheard of today. And many of these mid-20th century masters of photography were brought into the collection at a very inexpensive price at that Uh moment, uh which was fantastic. We were one of the early adopters Uh of this idea that photography is an art form worth collecting. And then it was built upon shortly thereafter, and many of these artists were brought into the collection. In fact, Tchaikovsky also bought, very early on, the box of 10 photographs by Dan Arbus, oh. Oh, which was printed in yeah. 1970. Yeah, and we're very pleased to have that. I almost that's included... That's rare, isn't it? It's very yeah. rare. I almost included all 10 of the uh-huh. photographs yeah. in the collection. They were on my list of 400. Yeah. But I felt it was a little unnecessary and maybe just showing off a yeah. little too much. Yeah, so you focused on the twins. You've got the one representative yes. example there. Yeah, which I just think yeah. is the one that people really yeah. think of when they think of Diane Arbus. Sikorsky was supportive, but the whole department seems to have been amenable to viewing the photograph as art, right? I mean, yes. the teaching art, the art history department. And was that... Because we were friendly to, and to some extent, a channel for modernism, do you think? That's very possible because our history really parallels the history at the Museum of Modern Art. Uh And we know much of this happened because of Agnes Claflin and her direct ties. Uh Alfred Barr, yeah. Alfred Barr, and and those connections, as you know, helped us remain in step Uh with what was happening Uh in Uh in modernism. Yeah, really interesting. And then today, the department's very interested in photography. We have a photographer on the staff, Judy Lynn. One of her photos is in the show. Yes. Beautiful photograph. Isn't that a wonderful uh, picture? Yeah. Recently uh, acquired. Oh, was it? Okay, mm-hmm. uh, Robert Mablethorpe and Patty Smith. Yeah, beautiful thing. So we have all these photographs that we were able to acquire in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 70s mm-hmm. and 80s mainly. But then there's another influx, isn't there? It seems to be, to some extent, when you start or a little <laughs> before you start. I mean, yes. Joel Smith, of course, was very interested in photography. That's correct. And Sandra Phillips, I remember, she was a curator of collections when I started. I think she was also, yes? Yes, um, yeah, so she was, her yeah. focus has been photography. She's yeah. gone on to work as a photo curator most recently at SFMOMA, uh-huh. where she's curator emeritus. Uh-huh. And yes, I think having a curator on staff of a museum who's dedicated to expanding that collection and the use of that collection is key if you're really going to make a true long-term commitment. And I would say that on my arrival, which was in late 2005, I looked at what we have already, which was already a fantastically strong collection, and I began to respond to some of those strengths in the collection, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, that sort of mid-century, 20th century modern masters. And then I also looked at some gaps in the collection Uh and noticed that, for instance, we didn't have any work by an Arab artist or an African artist. Uh Um, I added some more works by Asian artists, even European artists, which Mm -hmm. we didn't have, for instance, a work from the Dusseldorf Academy. Uh So you'll see the Candida Hofer in the exhibition, which Uh I acquired, I think, the year after I arrived, Uh because I was surprised that they didn't have anything from that German school of Uh photography. So those were sort of my way of building the collection, building on this really strong basis and foundation, and then adding in a more diverse Uh body of work that I felt could really round out the collection. So is the show, to some extent, a Mary Kay retrospective? I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's so many, so many photographs we've acquired since you've arrived you yes. know, in the collection. So, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily time, call yeah. it my... Uh, it's not all my doing. No. And I think I counted it up, and out of 125, less than half of the works had been 
acquired since my arrival. But there are works that really take up quite a bit of space that maybe are the biggest surprises in the yeah, exhibition. Uh-huh. Yes, so yeah. some of the African-American artists, yeah, yeah, some yes, of the color work, uh-huh. maybe some of the works that make our collection, as I said earlier, have this unique character. Very interesting. So the show itself, mainly when I talk to people, you and Patty, about exhibitions in the temporary exhibition spaces, there's a division of some kind. I mean, there are three large bays, oftentimes they're divided up. Mm-hmm. You can do a chronology, you can do things by theme, that kind of thing, but there's no chronology here in the way you've arranged it, or things are not divided by theme, are they? Not as closely as I've done in the past, yeah. and I did deliberately not choose a chronology, and I chose to do these very loose thematic hangings really as a way to bring forward some of these cross-conversations that could go across what is now 180 years of the history of photography Uh and looking at things from the 19th, the 20th, and now the 21st century and how they might have Uh some similarities Uh or comparisons that are worth seeing. So some of those juxtapositions came straight out of my understanding of the works Uh and then you'll see in the catalog essay I also bring together works that aren't next to one another Mm -hmm. but I bring them Uh into conversation in other ways so for instance the Anna Atkins a work by a Japanese artist named Kuni Segura and then another artist that's one of our 21st century works and that's Tanya Marcuse Uh because each of those female artists were working in their own time were working with the most advanced technological forms of photography, all looking Uh at nature as their subject uh matter. uh But in the exhibition, first I just want to mention that in addition to the three temporary exhibition galleries that we usually have shows in, I spilled over into Uh the second floor gallery, which is always dedicated to photography. So part of Uh, Shape of Light Uh is there. And then even I took over one of the 20th century galleries in our main galleries Mm -hmm. in order to show some of these big color works that we're just not going to fit. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) take up a whole wall, yeah. Yeah, so you'll see the show kind of meanders in Uh these various directions, but I would like to just point out that in the first gallery, I try to bring up what you mentioned as this experimental endeavor Uh that I think is so central to the creation of photography. And then in the second gallery, you'll mostly see portraits there, uh and that is one of the strengths of our collection. But I wanted to see what would happen if I put the Diane Arbus next to, or in the same gallery as, tiny vernacular photographs. Uh Because Uh I hope that people will begin to think about the flows of influence between a fine artist with a huge reputation like Arbus yeah. And someone who's an anonymous photographer. With a polar maybe, idea, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. photographing their own lives yeah. and activities. And maybe you'll even recognize that Diane Arbus was looking at the vernacular photography uh-huh. as much as oh, uh-huh. the yeah. amateurs were looking, looking at, at the professionals. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, so yeah. I love to see how those streams of influence can go both ways yeah. and maybe recognize those a little bit more yeah. when you shake it up and yeah. you don't just put all the street photographers, for instance, yeah. next to one another. Yeah. While I was passing through, I was trying to organize or pick up on your sense of organization mm-hmm. in the show itself. 
And it came to me that, honestly, I'd call the arrangement symphonic, uh, you know, composed of just really marvelously beautiful and interesting individual elements that do resonate with one another in harmonious ways often. And, I, you know, I wondered if it was the benefit of having just so much material to choose from. Maybe that's given you uh, sort of a free hand to literally compose a kind of organic and harmonious whole. So that's why I asked you about the Mary Kay retrospective, <laughs> because it's a curatorial thing. It is. And to some extent, when you hang a show, you're serving like an artist yourself, aren't you? I mean, you're working with other people's stuff, but it's like collage in a way, isn't it? So, um, it became that way, and, yeah. and thank you for the compliment. That, that's a, a very big compliment on my arrangement, because I, I hoped that other people would gain from it uh -huh. some of these interesting connections that are surprises. Yeah. And I do think that curating is a creative act, but it's also an act of interpretation. So while uh -huh. the inspiration happened with the artist making their work, a sort of second wave of inspiration comes when I view that work, as you say, in the context of this yeah. very large, diverse collection, and I have the privilege of taking those and sort of shaking them up uh -huh. and reconsidering them. And what I like to do, because we have, especially our main audience, mm -hmm. is people who were born in the 21st century, I like to try to think of how they might come across works like this. Uh -huh. and they don't always learn history in a chronological way. Yeah. Many students today have been very familiar with digital photography their whole lives, yes. since they were born, literally, yeah. when they were having their photograph taken. And it isn't until later that they find out that analog photography ever even existed. Uh -huh. oh, and then it's yeah. even later that they might find out about daguerreotypes uh -huh. and the original yeah. invention of photography, what a camera obscura is, uh -huh. for instance. So I think... The ways in which our audience will encounter this work, hopefully, will more mirror their own experience uh -huh. of how they understand and how they've learned about photography. Yeah. So chronology becomes a little bit less important. Loosening up some of those canonistic ideas about what we know about photography, I think, can benefit someone who's coming in with preconceived ideas like, oh, I know how to make a photograph. I make them all day with my phone. Well, we all do. Now. And we all we do. And this is, world, yeah. this I think makes photography even more relevant to our lives, uh -huh, yeah. but it can also create this sort of tension or question, I guess you could say, what is the use of looking at old paper photographs framed on a wall uh -huh. when we have streams of photographs yeah. that are available to us, yeah. you know, at the click of a button. So I hope that this exhibition really has the effect of making a case for actual photographs uh -huh. and for those experiences that you can have standing in front of an individual photograph, maybe seeing what's next to it on either side and making your own discoveries uh -huh. from those juxtapositions. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, wonderful. I should mention the catalog, which is a beautiful catalog. Yeah. You do organize your thoughts in the catalog under subject headings, light and experimentation, uh, light and vision, uh, portraiture and expression, mm -hmm. and uh, supernatural and the surreal, uh, cultural and social identity. So you do organize your thoughts in the catalog. And yes, the, the but I should mention that, that I had a hard time with that too because while uh -huh. each of those are a separate theme, yeah. it ends up that I don't end up talking about the daguerreotype until the third yeah. section. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I struggled yeah. with that. Can uh -huh. I really put a 19th century photograph 
after I've already talked about 20th yeah, and 21st. It works. And when you Thank read you. through it, does, yeah, it does as a narrative. So uh, the catalog's available in the kiosk downstairs. Isn't yes, it, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I know you've had wonderful photography exhibitions that we have talked about on the Library Cafe in the past since I started doing the show. The Gordon Park show stands out in my memory, and also the Andy Warhol show, of course, more recently. There was also a snapshot show, the daguerreotype show, uh, the Polaroid show, and then uh, Touch the Sky, which was about astronomy and the scientific connection. So most of these were homegrown exhibitions, so I'm supposing we just get a lot of mileage out of the photo collection in terms of exhibition material, don't we? We do, and that's the other thing that I forgot to mention in talking about why this collection exists and why it's so important to continue to expand the collection, is the role that it plays in the collection as a teaching institution Uh is very important, and I would say more important than some of the other mediums in the collection. And that's because, as I mentioned, I think that photography is very accessible and people feel that it's relevant to their lives. Uh And also, in the interdisciplinary teaching of various topics, such as astronomy, maybe women's studies, gender studies, Africana studies, and other areas in which the students have a great interest, I think photography can really expand the ways in which those things are taught mm-hmm. and really allow what they learn in the classroom to be played out mm-hmm. in a more visual way. Uh-huh. So the photography collection gets used quite often uh-huh. and in order to really be able to respond to the needs of faculty and students, we do want to expand it in various ways. And then of course to have this robust program of photography and we have a mandate actually from an endowment that we have at least one exhibition of photography per year Uh here. So you'll see those coming around each year. And now that I've done this one exhibition that highlights the collection, I'm very tempted to do another one. (laughs) I'm thinking about chapter two already. Uh, uh, Because as I said, there were many works that I really wanted to include that I wasn't able to. Yeah, how wonderful. Well, you should do it. So uh, (laughs) you have in this exhibit, what did make it onto the wall, you have such really wonderful masterpieces of famous photographers and important photographers, and also things that are less well-known but are just as interesting. So the difficult question, do you have any favorites in the show? I have so many favorites. Yeah, that's right. I knew you'd say that. How could you not? You yes, know, so, but, yeah. but I can bring up a couple of yeah. works that maybe are like hidden gems. Uh-huh. And one of them is a photograph by Jerry L. Thompson. Uh-huh. And it's a small photograph. And right now on the wall, it is between a Sally Mann, speaking uh-huh. of famous yeah. photographers, uh-huh. and a Winogrand. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah. very well-known names yeah. in the canon of 20th yeah. century photography. And then an artist who many of us have not heard of, yeah. who was introduced to me by one of our photo council members, uh-huh. Anne Morse, uh-huh. and is a local artist who lives in Amenia uh-huh. and has been working consistently since the 70s uh-huh. and actually used to work for Walker Evans uh-huh. and was his assistant during the last years of his life. Uh-huh. So he's very much a part of of sort of world of photography, but his name is just not that well known. So in the early 70s, he spent days, months, weeks working, taking photographs of people on Coney Island. Uh And the photograph that I ended up choosing for the exhibition, which was very tough to choose because we have about 12 of his works, is one from that series. Uh I think it's 1971, which was the first year he went to Coney Island. Oh yeah, I remember seeing it now. Uh Um, It's a portrait, and that's what he's known for. And it just has so much wall power, even Uh though it's quite small. Uh I think it's 8 by 10. Yeah. 
but the way that he engages with his subjects. He used a large format camera, an 8x10 format uh-huh. camera, which yeah. is a very slow process, so you have to ask your sitter to stand for still. a long and be yeah. very still for a, you know at least 30 seconds, if not longer. Uh-huh. So there is that relationship uh-huh. between the photographer and the subject, which is different than the Winogrand, for instance, uh-huh. right? Who was shooting from the hip with a Leica yeah, camera, yeah, yeah. you know, walking the streets uh-huh. of New York City, yeah, down the street, yeah. capturing people that may or may not have even known they were being photographed. Yeah, yeah. So to have those two together just uh-huh. makes me very happy because uh-huh. I think there's so many good comparisons there. Yeah, in, ter- um, in terms of subject. Yes, and then let's see, what other favorites do I have? Well, the piece that is on the cover of the catalog, Uh, the Richard Barnes. Yeah, yeah. just wonderful. Um, Such a fabulous picture. So this was taken during his year abroad when he was living in Rome on the Rome Prize. Yeah, I thought it was Italy for sure. Yes, and he was just fascinated by the way that starlings will Uh, all move as one organism and completely change the light in the sky. And what I always had learned in sort of the making of an analog photograph is that what you want to have is the blackest of black, uh-huh. something that goes all the way out to white, and then every tone of gray in between, uh-huh. yeah. which he achieves in such a beautiful yeah. composition. Yeah. So that's one of my absolute favorites. And I actually acquired it maybe six or maybe even eight years ago, and it's only been on view once oh, since then. Oh, really? So, so I've I, saved it yeah, for this You'd think it would be outing. a photograph. Everybody would know it has that kind of power. About yeah. It. yeah. It's fairly large, isn't it, it seems to me. And it, yeah, uh, it's one of our larger And uh, I really appreciate the urban scene of that post-war Italian apartment mm-hmm. building world that Fellini captures to some extent. Uh, yeah. So, that's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. Apart from obscure artists who catch your interest, are there any big names that just don't seem to hold up? I mean, you put <laughs> you put things in that you you know you thought were important, but I'm not a big fan of the Chuck Close. It takes up so much wall space. But so the Chuck Close actually harks back to a really interesting time, I think, oh. in the history of photography. The reason that that's such an important picture is because just prior to that. Fine art photography really had not exceeded the 11 by 16 Uh size. Uh And then Polaroid Corporation came out with this enormous camera Uh that's twice the size of my desk Uh that was called the 20 by 24 camera. Yeah, Tina Barney used it, right? Yes, and many artists continue to use it. There were six 20 by 24 cameras made ever. Mm-hmm. I think four or maybe even five of them still exist. Yeah, did so Andy Warhol get one also? He yeah, used he just, it. Yeah. No artist actually really owned it back mm-hmm. then. Yeah. The Polaroid Corporation really made it specifically for portraits, uh-huh. which I think is really interesting because portraits of photography had never been that large before. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then what does Chuck Close do? But he makes it even larger. Yeah, uh-huh. So he takes six photographs, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. super close up of his own face, which he was known to do. Mm-hmm. And then he composes them in a much uh, larger scale yeah. image. So uh-huh. it's the largest scale image of a person made with photography to date. Uh-huh. And he makes this in 1979. The camera came out in 1976. And what's so interesting about it is when you get up close to it and you can see all the details of his face, yeah. that was the first time that you could see those details with the human eye. So oh. it, it shows that photography continues to expand as uh-huh. an experimental medium yeah because it's allowing us to see things that we've never seen before. Uh, uh, 
So that pushes the same envelope yeah. that I'm interested in, yeah, this experimentation. Yeah, experimentation, yeah, yeah, interesting. So any other photographs that you're not crazy about? That I are mean, in the exhibition. Yeah, that are in the exhibition. Probably not, but... Uh, no, yeah. I mean, really, there's there are many photographs that I can think of that didn't make it into the yeah. exhibition yeah. that I wish had, yeah, okay. or people have asked yeah. me, people you know, why is the Vic Minis not in the exhibition? Yeah, people always ask, what's your favorite? But I'm asking you <laughs> the opposite. Your, it's kind of a hard question, yeah, yeah, what's your least favorite? But uh, <laughs> you don't have to answer, actually, so... Uh, uh, they're all wonderful, I think so. So we live, I mean, the joke used to be Adam once said to Eve, when Eve was feeling downcast about being thrown out of the garden, you know, the line was, don't worry, my dear, we live in an age of transition. That's uh, right. so, <laughs> so, and we do live in an age of big transition in my lifetime, in your lifetime, too, huge transition, yeah. talking to Harry about how important it was when he was a child to have a Polaroid camera. So much has been lost then in terms of the technology that we grew up with in the digital age now, and all of us, how However, are taking photographs all the time now on our cell phone cameras. And I, I have to say, I went for 30 years without taking a picture. And then cell phone cameras came in, you know, and I'm like everybody else, I have thousands of them. That I'm taking them all the time. Landscapes, yeah. people, you know, you name it. Yeah. So the question is, you answered this a little bit, but how do students relate to this history? I mean, are they interested? We have talked about it. I can add to that. I mean, yeah. a couple of things, too, in terms of how we've expanded the collection to really be more inclusive. Uh -huh. And I think I think this was pushed by the conversation of what is a photograph and uh -huh. why do we collect and what does it mean to a young person uh -huh. today. So one of the th ways in which our collection as well as other public collections have expanded with time is that now that photography doesn't have to defend its role as a work of art, we've been able to expand in order to collect things like documentary photography, fashion photography, even these vernacular photographs that were taken by completely anonymous people, not as works of art. Uh -huh. So I think what we're doing is sort of blurring this boundary of what is a photograph, does it always have to be a work of art for it to be an important addition to our collection? Uh -huh. And I think students, when they're and young people and ourselves, when we're out there taking pictures, we don't think we're making art yeah. every minute, yeah. but what we're doing is we're responding to the world around us by capturing its image. Uh -huh. and to remember that 180 years ago that was not available to us. Yeah, that was yeah. an impossibility yeah, yeah. unless you went out with a big sketchbook and a pencil yeah. and stood, you know, spent a long time yeah. to draw an image, you weren't able to capture your surroundings. Yeah. So the role of photography as something that is sort of recording our history mm -hmm. as it happens and then is fed back to us as news, uh -huh. oh. I think is really interesting. And I think there was maybe a shift people talk about 9-11 as a moment yeah. in which uh -huh. the words from the news became a little bit less important than the images. The images, yeah. Right, so when well, you saw yeah. those towers burning, you knew what happened. Yeah. And that's what emblazoned into our minds. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily what people were saying about it at the time, but yeah. the images. Yeah. Um, so I think the role that photography plays in our lives becomes something that does make it interesting yeah. and makes memory an important aspect of uh -huh, how uh -huh. we know things, uh -huh. how we read history, yeah. and that we're using our visual memory yeah. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating. So photography throws into question what is art, for one thing, but, yes. it, but it also throws into question all kinds of other things about what it means to be human, which is related yeah. to the question what is art. So yeah. yeah, and I wonder sometimes if this mad dash to record everything around us. First, I think it's very Warholian. Uh -huh. So yeah, Warhol yeah. had a box next to yeah. his desk and yeah. threw things into it and created these time capsules. Uh -huh. Every month he would fill a box with 
little ephemera yeah. from his yeah. life. He would have loved the iPhone, so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Better than a Campbell's soup, so. Yes, so that idea, I think, continues today, and I don't think it's going away. No. I think we're going to continue to collect images uh, in yeah, yeah. mad dash yeah, yeah. to record the world. Yeah, as a librarian, it makes me happy, actually, <laughs> yeah. uh, archiving things, so. We didn't talk about that. How, how do you organize this stuff so you can get back to it and see it? Because uh, there must be a metadata scheme of some kind where yeah. uh, they can find out what's in the collection. And then well, that's at, a good yeah, question yeah. and actually something that we're embarking on improving for uh -huh. our collection. Yeah. So another announcement that Bart Thurber made since his arrival uh -huh. is that we are about to hire a two-year photography fellow, and that person will be focused on the collection uh -huh. and doing specific research on photography collections that will help us tag our collection so mm -hmm. it will be more searchable oh, on our uh -huh. database, yeah. more usable by faculty, students, and the like, and also the public, and to make sure that good research has been done on at least a good portion of what we have. And then we'll continue after the uh, two years, yeah. ideally with continuing that uh, Oh, position. wonderful. So yeah. what do you have coming up in terms of exhibitions sort of generally at the center? But also, is there anything the Advisory Council Photographs is thinking about? Yes. So the Advisory Council for Photography yeah. meets twice a year. Uh -huh. And the spring meeting is always the time when we consider the annual acquisition. Yeah. So there's this moment where usually beginning around now, right up until this meeting, which occurs in May, yeah. that I'm collecting and gathering materials that I'm interested in adding to the collection. I can tell you one artist that I'm already thinking about mm -hmm. is Lee Miller. Ah, so uh -huh. Lee Miller, who was from Poughkeepsie, right. lived yeah. here for a long time. Oh, I didn't know she was from Poughkeepsie. Oh, yes, and some of her family still lives here. Oh. And she has these deep roots in this area. Uh -huh. She was a surrealist photographer. She invented solarization yes, uh -huh. along with Man Ray, uh -huh. who was her good friend. So there's one Lee Miller in the collection, uh -huh. and it's a portrait. Yeah. And I thought about including it in the exhibition, but it's not the strongest Lee Miller. Yeah, uh -huh. So it wasn't going to make her look any better than yeah. her kind of least yeah. interesting picture. And it made me think we really need a fantastic Lee Miller in the collection. Uh -huh. And I've been dealing a little bit with her estate, which is actually based in England, uh -huh. but they're coming to visit uh -huh. next week, and we're going to look at some of her work for uh -huh. a potential acquisition. Oh, oh, great. Very so, exciting. So we might have a show around that? Possibly. Ideally, yes. Yeah. They really want to have a show yeah. in her hometown. Oh, okay. So I'm oh, also beginning... Okay. We borrow works from other institutions, so we do that. Yeah, or right from the estate, because yeah, they have the pretty much uh -huh. everything. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So, and then anything else coming up? On our exhibition calendar, yes, we have the very next exhibition is a show called Louise Bourgeois, uh -huh. Ode to Forgetting. Uh -huh. And this is a wonderful show that's all coming from the Jordan Schnitzer collection, uh -huh. actually with a few additions. And it is comprises prints and fabric works uh -huh. and one spectacular sculpture. Oh, uh -huh. And most of this is work that she made in the last decade of her life. Uh -huh. So she was quite elderly. I think she was maybe 100 years old when yeah. she died. Uh -huh. And so it's work that she made, and Ode to Forgetting is such a lovely name because it, it's not so much about memory as in trying to save everything, yeah. as we were talking about, but sort of the opposite. What would you like to forget? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, interesting. And then, Oblivion, yeah. Yes, and then two exhibitions that will follow that also next semester. One is called... Miracles on the Border, Retablos of Mexican Migrants to the United States, and that's an exhibition that was organized actually at the Princeton Art Museum, uh -huh. and we'll travel here, and then in the summer we'll have a Rauschenberg 
prints show work that he made in the 70s. Great. So honestly, I'd urge anyone in the area to see this exhibition if you can. You can't come away from it without feeling exhilarated about a medium that doesn't always command the respect it should, among other forms of art. But with so many true masterpieces in one place here, expertly collected and expertly arranged, even those of you who don't ordinarily beat a path to photo shows might come away from this with a new perspective about the place of photography in art and culture. So uh, I want to thank you, Mary Kay, for visiting with us on the Library Cafe today to talk about your wonderful show, Shape of Light. Defining Photographs from the Francis Lehman Loeb Art Center, which is yes. going to be up, by the way, until December... December 15th. 15th. Okay. So there's All plenty fall. of time plenty to come time and see it. Come. And I want to just make a plug for a couple of programs that we have coming up. Oh, yes. Okay. And they might be good times for people to come and see the exhibition. On Thursday, November 21st at 5 p.m., I will be giving a curator's walkthrough of the exhibition. Uh, so if you liked what you've heard and you want to hear more from me, you can come back for that. Yeah. And then on December 4th, one of the artists in the exhibition who actually lives on the West Coast in the Bay Area, Katie Grannon, mm -hmm. is coming and she will discuss her large-scale portrait in the exhibition. Mm -hmm. And she'll be screening her film, a documentary film from... 2016 called The Nine, which was related oh. to the portrait in the exhibition, okay. and that will be December 4th. At 4 p.m. she'll discuss her piece, and then at 6.30 we'll screen the film in Taylor 203. Okay, wonderful. So, well, thank you again, Mary Kay. So. Yes, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me.